Welcome to Three Questions With, a podcast of the Latino News Network. LNN is dedicated to best serving Hispanic Latinos with news and information websites in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, a statewide community-focused editorial initiative. Three Questions With is a public affairs program elevating the voices and visibility of matters most important to the Hispanic Latino community by speaking with community and industry thought leaders on topics like civic engagement, education, employment, healthcare, communication, and social responsibility, among others. I'm Hugo Balta, publisher of LNN and your host. Last month, the U.S. Census began to roll out the numbers, and it showed that Massachusetts is getting older. In fact, the Bay State ranks sixth in the country when it comes to a population over 18 years old. Massachusetts is also becoming more diverse, with Hispanics, Latinos leading the way, an increase from nearly 10% to nearly 13% in, in the last 10 years. All in all, what that means is that services organizations provide, like the ones that our next guest leads, are going to have to continue to pivot to meet the needs of the changing populace. AARP Massachusetts has been assisting the community with programs like where to get the COVID-19 vaccine and avoiding scams during the pandemic, as well as staples like fighting to lower prescription drug costs, support family caregivers, and make it easier for workers to save for retirement. Here to share with us insights is Mike Festa, State Director of AARP Massachusetts, an organization that advocates for its more than 800,000 members aged 50 and older in the Commonwealth. Welcome to the program, Mike. Thank you, friend. It's a, a, an honor and a pleasure to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. So, so do I. It's been a busy year. I don't have to tell you that in many ways, same if not more than last year, as the state, like the rest of the country, continues to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell us about the work AARP Massachusetts has been leading this past year. Well, let me just start by acknowledging the point you made in the introduction, and that is that the Hispanic Latino community in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts continues to grow. And one of the overarching interest that I have as the state director and ARP has generally in Massachusetts is an appreciation for the need to expand our programming in the communities uh, and frankly, to be more relevant to their needs. So most everything I'll be talking about with you on this podcast will reflect uh, you know, content and issues which are frankly universal to the 50 plus community, but at the same time, I want to assure the listeners that we are really intent on uh, connecting and empowering and supporting the Hispanic Latino community, uh, not just because of the demographics, but because frankly, ARP is a social mission organization and our reason for existence is to help folks add to age and age well. And, and that's for everyone in the community. So we. We really have that as an overarching focus. And when it comes to the first topic of, of uh, you know, health, our health, uh, the challenge of the COVID-19, the pandemic, uh, you know, it's, it's almost Groundhog Day, right? We thought a year ago that at some point we would be free of this scourge and that we would be able to resume 
whatever normal is, but certainly much better um, dynamics than what we unfortunately continue to contend with. And what that's me meant for us at ARP is that we have really expanded actually the number of programs uh, and events, uh, obviously virtual, in order to reach as many, if not more people than we have been in the past. And at the same time, uh, it's just incredible when you think about what happened about 15, 16 months ago, when the number of people that died in nursing homes and our veterans in, in Holyoke and, and, uh, and Chelsea and, and all, I mean, if you just add up those numbers, we're talking thousands and thousands of people who were killed because we were inadequate to the task of being prepared with the right equipment, with the right protocols, with the right testing. And we have spent a lot of our time as an organization uh, working with the Baker administration, but working, frankly, um, as advocates to call attention to the continued challenge of uh, healthcare in uh, long-term care facilities. You know, this Delta variant obviously is taxing us as a system. And what concerns us is that it, the recurrence or the reintroduction of COVID into these uh, confined facilities, let's, let's call them what they are. You know, these are places where people aren't able to get around as much. They're certainly not leaving the facility as a, you know, sort of as a regular, uh, uh, you know, happening. And because of that confined space, it, you know, for the COVID to latch on and cause great harm is very real. And so we, we've been spending time as recently as, uh, you know, yesterday I approved a, another letter to the Baker administration urging that they insist on, and, and applauding them actually, because they've now expanded the requirement for vaccines to include uh, assisted living as well as the long-term care but also hospice programs and something I'm sure many of the listeners are aware of. We have a great home and community-based care system that has people, many from your community, frankly, who are in homes and helping people live better lives. And now the administration is requiring all of them to be vaccinated. And we think that universal application of that requirement is going to, um, you know, frankly, improve not only the health of, of, of those who are interacting, but also because it's universal, it will militate against what we know to be one of the concerns, which is some folks are saying, you know, if I work for your agency and, and I don't want to take a vaccine, well, I'll just go to another place. Well, if all the places are doing the same thing, then at least you know it's a level playing field. So I just want to get all of that out and uh, stop talking. No, no, no. And it's very important. I think the standardization of, of vaccines is important. It protects um, certainly the, the, the people in our population that are most at risk, beginning with uh, people, uh, uh, elderly people and children. And we've, we're seeing right. that, um, unfortunately, uh, as we're mo moving into the new school year and, uh, and now resuming uh, classes in person, Person, but also just walking into fall and winter, um, people are bracing for a, a, a new surge, and 
uh, it is very important uh, the work that AARP is doing and and educating people about the the value of of uh, getting the vaccination not only for themselves but for the people that they work with that they take care of. Now, one of the biggest challenges um, also has been people are having um, are being uh, victimized by scar scam artists who, as always, look to exploit situations like the pandemic, taking advantage of people when they're most vulnerable. A study by the Federal Trade Commission shows that uh, Hispanic Latino communities report less fraud than others. The AARP Fraud Watch Network um, that AARP Massachusetts has launched is a resource to help people spot and avoid identity theft and fraud. What can you tell us about that program? Well, if, first of all, it's, a, it's, it's what I call an evergreen program. It's always on, it, that website is constantly refreshed with new information about the ever-changing landscape of, uh, you know, fraud and how these fraudsters will, uh, you know, try new tricks. And our job is to provide, in the first instance, good, reliable information and we have the Fraud Watch Network. And if you go on AARP.org, you know, O-R-G, and just type in Fraud Watch Network or fraud, you'll get to the website and you'll see it's, and we have a Spanish version, uh, but you're gonna see a lot of information that arms people with what I would call in some cases, good old fashioned common sense, but also to give insight into you know, what these scammers are trying to do to you. And one of the things that it's always important to remember, let's take, for example, the grandparent, grandchild scheme where they try to get people, they call up someone and say, we're holding your grandchild hostage, you know, and they'll come up with a name uh, that, you know, if they're, if they're surfing uh, Facebook, you know, keep that in mind. You post personal information, you post pictures of grandchildren, you post names to those those, those pictures. Uh, you know, these people are pretty sophisticated. They can put one, you know, two and two together. But the point is that what they're trying to do is get you not to think. They want you to react emotionally. Now, when somebody gets a call saying, I'm from the Internal Revenue Service, or I'm calling because your grandchild is, you know, tied up in a room, uh, you know, that immediately gets you emotionally in a whole different place. We call that hijacking the amygdala of the brain. So it's all adrenaline. You're not thinking clearly. And they know this. And so they're going to try to get you to quickly go from panic to what can I do? And here's my account number. And, you know, and before you know it, you've been, uh, you become a victim. And it all starts with an understanding that these scammers are trying to take advantage of natural feelings that people have. Um, and so that's an example. But Fraud Watch Network at ARP has been around for a number of years. We do a lot of promotion. We do a number of events that focus on fraud. Uh, we work closely with uh, both police and other law enforcement with the home and community-based care. Uh, elder Protective Services. This is a network of, of organizations and people who are trying to help your listeners avoid becoming victims. I'll say one last thing on a personal note. My first job when I got out of law school was to be a prosecutor, in, and I was actually a prosecutor in Middlesex County, based in Cambridge. 
And uh, I recall then, as I do now, that some of the biggest challenges for prosecuting cases like this is many folks just don't want to admit that they got scammed. They're embarrassed. They, they worry that maybe the family will think I'm, I'm losing my mind. And if I would do this, God help us. And, you know, our minds are, will act that way. And as a prosecutor, I always reminded myself, number one, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the victim. Number two, you don't want to be helping them at that point in their stage of the crime happening. You want to prevent this from happening. Once you're talking to a prosecutor or a police department, the odds are very good that whatever happened to you can't be changed. The person who stole that money from your bank account is in some, you know, Eastern Bloc country, or, you know, somewhere very hard to track. And there's so much of it going on that we just don't want to misrepresent the reality that getting your money back at that point is very hard. So this is all about prevention. This is all about information sharing. And that's my, you know, the point I wanted to emphasize. Yeah. And criminals know that fear is the best motivator and nothing drives fear more than a loved one in trouble. And that's exactly, or God forbid, the IRS coming after you for back, back taxes, right? That's kind of a common thing. And again, that's the reason. I mean, you know, I mean, who, who from the IRS is going to call you? At home, I mean, they don't, but people don't think that way. So that that's we're dealing with very sophisticated people, and as you know, you know, this is a big thing that's out there in the public. You've got governments and major corporations that are becoming victims of very sophisticated hacking and hijacking on uh, and and uh, ransomware they call it, right? And so, if it can happen to you know major corporations. Uh, you know, Mary or Jorge or whomever is going to be in a much more vulnerable position, odds are, and therefore all the more reason to be prepared to avoid being scammed. You're listening to Three Questions with Mike Festa, State Director of AARP Massachusetts. Questions With is a public affairs program elevating the voices and visibility of matters most important to the Hispanic Latino community. We are speaking with Mike Festa, State Director of AARP Massachusetts, about the work the organization has been leading in the COVID-19 era, including how to protect oneself against identity fraud and theft. AARP Massachusetts recently announced four Bay State organizations that will receive the 2021 Community Challenge Grant part of the largest group of grantees to date with $3.2 million awarded among 244 organizations nationwide. Grantees will implement quick action projects to promote livable communities by improving housing, transportation, public spaces, civic engagement, and connection with family, friends, and neighbors with an emphasis on the needs of the 50 plus. Many of this year's awards support revitalizing communities adversely impacted by the pandemic and include a focus on diversity, inclusion, and disparities. Mike, tell us about one of the recipients of, of the award this year, Urban Farming Institute of Boston. 
Sure, I'm happy to. And just to step back a moment, uh, AARP recognizes that part of what we can do to be helpful uh, is to look at the what I call the built environment and the opportunity at a community level to have an impact, not just for our own members, but everyone in the community. And many of the projects that we have supported are what I'd characterize as intergenerational. They're focused on health and uh, and and connectivity, reducing isolation, et cetera. Now, what's near and dear to me, I mean, something else I'll share with you on a personal note is one of my passions is gardening. And I've always felt at AARP that if we can go to a community and encourage, in this case here, urban gardening uh, to recognize it is a full experience. It is providing food, obviously, and literally, but it's also a place to connect to be in the fresh air, to work with others, friends, acquaintances, uh, neighbors, uh, and to improve the quality of life in the neighborhood. And so we have been, over the years, actually, we have funded a number of uh, raised bed gardens where you know folks in wheelchairs or with walkers or just have a problem being ambulatory or, or, or are seated, seated, they can uh, it's at you know a level where they can just reach right into that to that uh, garden bed. So that's one example of what we uh, what the national organization decided to do. Um, urban farming is you know a very important message as well uh, that re respects the fact that many folks in urban settings are not uh, used to having gardens in their in their neighborhood or in their backyards because uh, it's a very built environment so whatever we can do to to encourage uh that kind of an activity that kind of an experience we're certainly going to do that i i also want to add something else this was not part of your introduction but i think it's important to know in the city of worcester uh, arp national recently built uh at a considerable cost but nevertheless something that we obviously wanted to do a, what they call a fit lot. And uh, it's built now, uh, it's all set. There are programs being done in, you know, at the facility. It's right near the um, Worcester Council on Aging. And it's a, it's a really impressive facility with all of the, uh, you know, all of the uh, equipment, uh, as you might imagine, that would be in a fit lot, you know, where people will work on their uh, fitness and, you know, all the other things like that. So we, we now Worcester, let's face it. I mean, Worcester is a hugely important community for the, for the New England area, both economically. And as we think about the Hispanic uh, Latino community, it's a, it's a strong presence. Uh, there is a strong presence in Worcester. So as we intentionally focus on city of Worcester and its environs, uh, we're mindful of the fact that we're trying to impact as many of our, our friends in the community, Hispanic Latino community, um, as possible. So we're doing that. And lastly, I want to say that in addition to the national awards, we are from the state budget that I manage, uh, we are also giving out additional mini grants to volunteer organizations or communities that are looking for a little extra help. And if, I'll give you one example. While I was staying on the subject of uh, you know, for the built environment. Um, hey, we would we could really use ten benches in strategic locations 
uh, in the city or in the town. And that's the kind of thing we would pay for. Or um, the equipment or the material to build uh, things like a raised bed garden, et cetera. So we're doing those kinds of things. And we are very proud of the lasting impact that many of these projects will have, not just for the next year or two, but for hopefully a full generation. Fitness, um, nutrition, all these things are very intentional in what you're describing and what AARP Massachusetts is doing. I'd love to end how we started in talking about the continuing changing demographics in in Massachusetts and the continued growth of the Hispanic Latino community. As someone, and I believe you're maybe two years shy of, of completing 10 years in your position, but certainly uh, as a resident of Massachusetts, you've seen a lot of changes. What can you share with us in regards to what are the challenges and opportunities as, as the, continued, the, the demographics continue to change? And as you mentioned, you know, Worcester as an example, certainly Boston is seeing an increased number of Hispanic Latinos, which by the way, um, isn't just people that are moving into no, it's Massachusetts. A, yeah. it's, it's, it's also birth rates, right? People like exactly, myself right. Um, that are born in the US, but certainly am, am bicultural. Tell us a little bit about that. What, what do you see as the opportunities and challenges? Well, let's just start with what I think is obvious to the community and the listeners, but it needs to be stated. And that is that when you talk Hispanic Latino, you're talking a, an incredible range of experiences from where they they lived, uh, perhaps as uh, coming from another country, where they grew up culturally very different. Um, and I think it's not right to sort of paint a broad bush, brush. It's an acknowledgement that, um, you know, we, we have all kinds of differences with regard to, um, you know, politics, uh, uh, some of the you know, some of the cultural challenges and barriers, you know, we deal with that in a variety of ways. We know in the black community, as well as some parts of the Hispanic community, experiences with the healthcare system has been negative and therefore has implicated the willingness to take vaccines. I mean, these kinds of things manifest in a different way, but the simple truth is it's not homogeneous. It's quite different. And a person from uh, the Dominican is very different than someone that comes from Mexico or, you know, pick any other uh, country or, you know, frankly, any other part of Massachusetts. I know people, I know a lot of people uh, in New Bedford and, uh, you know, they're, they're very different than people in Lawrence and people in Worcester and, you know, all other parts of the country. So, excuse me, of the state. But uh, the point, of course, as we do our programming is to acknowledge that. And then I do wanna make another statement uh, that I think is really critical for the listeners. One of the things we do at ARP is we have a volunteer executive council. These are folks that guide us in our work and do a lot of super volunteer uh, activities. One of our relatively new members is a gentleman that many of the listeners may have heard about, Jorge Quiroga, who is a retired local TV journalist who is very well known in the community and wants to give back. And he joined AARP's executive council. And one of the things he's doing, and I just wanna alert folks to this, is we've got an upcoming panel event called The Power of Stories that Jorge is gonna moderate 
Uh, and it's going to be focused on the value of stories in the Hispanic Latino community as a tapestry, you know, a contribution to the tapestry of the American community. The panelists, they're going to weave their stories. They're going to connect to caregiving, to food, to family. And we're hoping that the participants and the ones who listen in are going to come away feeling empowered to share their own story uh, using what we call the StoryCorps platform. So many of these stories are going to be entered into the archives of the Library of Congress. And um, it's really cool to consider, you know, doing participating in this. And what I wanted to let people know is the event is going to be in English, but there's going to be simultaneous Spanish translation available uh, available through Zoom. And we're going to be doing that on October 25th, but there are going to be additional story core events in November and then in the upcoming year, early 2022. So that's just one example of, of two things. One is an acknowledgement that it's important to have the voices of the community around the table as we make our plans for events in the upcoming year. Jorge is a critical example of someone's voice that we value. In addition to that, we he's talented and therefore he can put on a program, be a moderator and do a great job with that. But we have a number of folks in the, the black community, um, in the Chinese community, uh, Asian community generally, who are volunteers. And uh, I guess I wanna end by saying this, we as an office are only 10 people. We have 800,000 members and we have a, hundreds of volunteers. But we also partner with a lot of other organizations because we know that in many communities, including Hispanic Latino communities, our credibility as an organization is limited because the community experience is limited with ARP. So joining forces with well-established and respected partnerships uh, and, and uh, organizations, uh, whether it's you know in Chelsea and Boston, Revere, you know, I can go down the list. We do a lot of that because we want to rely on that credibility to do our part of the job. And collaboration is certainly key to success. Uh, bridge builders like Jorge Quiroga, veteran WCVB reporter, also facilitates that. And I absolutely agree with you. It's important to understand that the Hispanic Latino community is not a monolithic group. Right. And I think uh, you've illustrated very well, uh, again, on being intentional in best serving this community. Mike Festa, State Director of AARP Massachusetts, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on. All the best. You've been listening to Three Questions With, a podcast by the Latino News Network, produced in collaboration with Infinite Multimedia, the parent of El Tri Online, an English language news outlet covering Mexican soccer. LNN is dedicated to best serving Hispanic Latinos with news and information websites in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, a statewide community focused initiative. I invite you to visit us at ctlatinonews.com, malatinonews.com, and nhlatinonews.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Latino News Network, where we post new content regularly. And remember, you can listen to a new episode of Three Questions With twice a month. The next podcast drops on September 24th. We'll be joined by NH State Representative Manny Espiria, 
who earlier this year dealt with a threat relating to increased racial tensions in the community of Nashua and in many other parts of the state. Amugo Valta, publisher of LNN, thank you all for listening. Stay informed, stay healthy, stay safe.